Well, open your Bibles, please, to Colossians chapter 1. And Devin, I want to thank you all for praying for us as we were gone last week to visit our kids and grandkids. We hadn't seen them for probably 15 or 16 months, so it was wonderful to see them again. They're only one day's a drive away, one tank of gas, and so uh, we are thrilled that they're closer. Colossians 1, that has a nice ring to it, doesn't it? We, haven't, uh, we worked through the first 14 verses uh, before COVID, and uh, since I personally have forgotten every sermon I preached in the last, uh, those first 14 verses, I assume you have too. So I thought what we'd do is backtrack and just do a general overview of those first 14 verses uh, to bring us back to where we left off, and then we will go ahead and jump into verse 15 um, next week. So Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its power. We thank you that it reveals to us our sin and our Savior. And we ask you that you open our eyes to these things this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you. Since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he's a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He's delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word. In the weeks before COVID, it took five sermons to go through these 14 verses. So I hope as we go through this in a summary, that'll jog our memories to be mindful exactly of what Paul's saying here in this particular text. And as I said, we'll jump into verse 15 next week. It's important to remember as we think about the, the Colossian church, that they're right in the middle of a theological drift. The world system and the religious system that was all around them began to affect their thinking about Christ, about salvation, and about growth in the Christian life and sanctification. Now, just a reminder, when I use the word sanctification, what I mean is it's the process by which God conforms believers into the image of Christ from the time we become Christians until the time we actually die. Salvation is our birth into Christ. Sanctification is our growth in Christ. So it's the process 
of becoming more and more like the Lord Jesus as we say no to sin and yes to righteousness throughout the Christian life. It's continuing on in the Christian life. We're reminded that he who began a good work in us will complete it. We're reminded that he who authored our faith will finish our faith. And the completing and the finishing process is part of this work of sanctification by the Spirit. A uh, pastor from days gone by in our lives who's gone home to be with the Lord used to always remind us that when we became believing Christians, at that moment we were positionally righteous in Christ. And for the rest of our lives, God is going to make us practically what we are positionally, and this is just a process of sanctification as we learn and grow in Him. And what these Colossians were beginning to believe is that Christ was not enough to finish the work He started. They began to believe they needed more than Christ. They needed tradition. They needed angelic beings. They needed self-effort even. The word that some people use to describe this kind of influence on the church is called syncretism. Syncretism is defined as the combining of different belief systems and maintaining that all of them are very, pretty much equal. It involves the, the, the merging or the assimilation of, of all of these different systems and they bring together these thoughts that are both in religion and in the world and they merge them together. The teaching that infiltrated the church in Colossae was, was a blending of Old Testament Jewish myth. Uh, it, was a, it was an addition of Greek philosophy, spirituality, and even a moralism that communicated that righteousness is based on self-effort and self-denial. Now, based on Paul's emphasis on Christ in Colossae, it appears that instead of seeing Christ as a divine creator, as the redeemer, as the only provision for our sin and our only aid in conforming us into his image, the Colossians began to look toward outside means to try and become holy or to try to become righteous by their own effort. So they're trusting in these outward systems, their outward religion to make themselves pure instead of continuing to allow Christ to work in and through them. Now the corrective for these errant thoughts, these false ideas, is simply a biblical view of the Lord Jesus Christ, which Paul declares over and over and over again in the book of Colossians. Let me just walk through some of the thoughts that these Colossians were beginning to believe that Paul corrects. If you look at chapter 2, verse 8, Colossians chapter 2, verse 8. Colossians 2.8, Paul writes, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Jump down to verse 16. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. Um, verse 18. Let no one disqualify you in insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. And then verse 20. If with Christ you died 
to the elemental spirits of the world. Why? As if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they're used according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgences of the flesh. Now, obviously, we can't explain all those today. We'll get there eventually. But do you see the issues in the church? Man-made philosophy, human tradition, being judged by what you eat and drink, whether you should celebrate festivals, whether you should keep the Sabbath, angel worship, and even self-denial in order to gain some sort of victory over your fleshly indulgences. How do you correct the false teaching? How does Paul correct their thinking? What is the answer to the church who, who's sliding down this slippery slope of going into philosophical moralism? I said earlier, the book of Colossians is the most Christ-centered epistle in the whole New Testament. And what Paul is doing throughout the whole letter is reminding them first and foremost what they first heard and understood and learned in the gospel. And then he'll give the most clear and the most powerful and the most robust, detailed explanation of who Jesus Christ is, what he's done, and why that matters. It's the most detailed explanation of the person and the nature and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, literally in all the epistles. Paul, in the book of Colossians, puts Christ at the very center. By first, we'll notice today, reminding them of, of how they came to the grace of God and truth, taught by Epaphras in chapter 1, verse 7. And then he's going to explain the change that took place in their lives in verses 12 through 14 to show them all that Christ has done for them. And then in verse 15, in verse 15, he goes on and talks about the Lord Jesus. He's the image of the visible God. Verse 16, he's the creator of all things. Verse 17, he is eternal. He is the sustainer of all things. Verse 18, he is the head of the church. Verse 19, he's God. And in verse 20, he's reconciled all things to himself and he made peace for us by dying on the cross. But then Paul's not even done. Because when he gets into chapter 2, starting with verse 6 to 15, there are nine in hymns or with hymns, all referring to Christ, which carries the letter to this crescendo, this, this climax or high point of the whole letter in chapter 3, verse 1, where he says, if then... You've been raised with Christ. And of course you have. Since you've been raised with Christ, then keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. So what this entire epistle is saying is Christ brought you out of death to life. He brought you from darkness to light. He created you. He sustains you. He redeemed you. He's reconciled you to himself. He's given you a heavenly inheritance. And you're in Him, and He's in you. So set your mind on the eternal, not the temporal. I think if we had a theme chorus, a theme chorus for the book would probably be something like, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in His wonderful face. And the things of earth will go strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. That's where we're going. For today, we're going to do is look at verses 1 through 14 
and I want to rebuild the foundation that Paul laid. In verses 1 through 8, he's expressing thanksgiving for their salvation. In 9 through 11, he's praying for their sanctification. And then 12 through 14, he's telling them what happened to them in their transformation. Or what happened when they became believing Christians. And this literally is the foundation for the rest of the book. You can't miss the fact that he's thankful for their salvation. He states it immediately in verse 3 that he and his companions always thank God for them and always pray for them since they heard of their faith in Christ Jesus. And what we've emphasized several weeks ago when we looked at this passage more carefully is that faith in Christ requires hearing, it requires understanding, it requires believing and learning the basic truths of the gospel. And when these truths are believed and received by faith, lives are transformed. We see this transformation by Paul pointing out in verse 4 that he has heard of the love they have for all the saints. He states it again in verse 8 when he says they have a love in the spirit. Think about your own lives. Prior to believing the gospel, they would have no love for believers at all. They would have no desire to fellowship with believers. They would have no desire to sing and congregate with believers. They wouldn't want to serve believers, and they wouldn't want believers to serve them. They wouldn't want to worship with believers. And now they're in Christ, and everything's changed because of that. So there's a visible and noticeable love that Paul is aware of that they have for those in the body of Christ. Now this is really significant. We've gone over it before, so I just will be brief. But part of the reason it is so critical and fundamental to be an active participant in, in the body of Christ is because you cannot express your love for one another if we're not involved in each other's lives. When a person comes to faith in Christ, he's part of a new family, part of a new household, part of a new kingdom. And again, one of the evidences of being a believing Christian is simply a love for believers. A love for the saints would imply involvement in the lives of others in the church. It would imply relationships. It would imply burden bearing. It would imply fellowshipping. Not just on Sunday mornings, but even outside the church building. But notice that the change that took place and the new love they have for believers was a result of their faith in Christ. And their faith in Christ, according to verses 6 and 7, was a result of God using this gentleman, Epaphras, to preach and teach God's word to them so that they heard it, they understood it, and they learned the gospel, or what Paul calls the grace of God in truth. This is such a reminder that to become a believing Christian, there's, there's something to know, there's something to believe, there's something to understand and learn and eventually trust or put your faith in or commit to. Now, now here, Paul doesn't identify it. He, he doesn't identify what they came to learn or what they came to believe. He just calls it the word of truth. He calls it the gospel. And he calls it the grace of God in truth. He doesn't explain it here, but he will as the letter progresses. Which moves me to ask the question, what do you have to know? To become a Christian? What do you have to understand to become a believer in Jesus Christ? This is where the Heidelberg Catechism really helps us out because question two is so simple and it states just three things. First, I must know the greatness of my sin and misery. Second, 
how I am redeemed from all my sins and misery. Third, how I am to be thankful to God for such redemption. So brief, yet so clear. I must know my sin. I must know my Savior and be grateful for my salvation. Clearly, they, they had to hear that they were sinners. They had to hear and understand that they were alienated from God, that they were actually hostile toward God, and they had done evil deeds against God, which Paul mentions later. They had to hear and understand that their sin had separated from them from a holy God who was rightfully angry at them because of their sin. And they had to hear and understand and learn and believe that Jesus Christ lived a perfect life and died a sacrificial death in order to appease or satisfy God's anger that was against them because of their sin. And when they understood these things, when the Spirit of God began to open their blind eyes, they had to repent or turn from their sin and trust in the death and resurrection of Christ to save them from their sin, which would produce this thankfulness that the catechism talks about. Honestly, one of my biggest burdens here uh, as a pastor of, I've been here a year, but in one sense, I'm still fairly new, is I want us to be absolutely clear on the gospel. Uh, the, the wife of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who preached in Wales and London in an earlier generation, many years ago, um, she would have said that when she married the doctor, she would have said that she was a believing Christian. If someone asked her, she would have said, she would have said something like, I cannot even remember the time when I wasn't a Christian. But after hearing the clear presentation of the gospel during the first few years that they were married, she concluded that she never fully heard, understood, or learned these things. It wasn't until after she was a pastor's wife that she understood that she was, quote, not always a Christian. She finally and truly understood that, that she was a sinner and that Christ was a great Savior. But it wasn't until she heard the preaching that she did, in fact, become a believing Christian. You see, there's things you must know, things you must understand, and things you must believe. So he begins the letter, thankful for their salvation, but, but he doesn't stop there. He quickly begins praying for their sanctification. He starts praying for their growth in Christ. Again, we went over this in greater detail previously, but there's really only two actual requests here. Verse 9, may you be filled with the knowledge of God's will. And verse 11, may you be strengthened or being strengthened with all power. Everything else in these verses are byproducts of these two prayers being answered. And what I want you to understand is that the prayer of these Colossians to be filled with the knowledge of God's will is not going to be answered in a, in a spiritual zap. I wish it was. It's not going to be answered by a lightning bolt from heaven. You're not going to go to bed tonight on July 12th and get zapped while you're sleeping and all of a sudden tomorrow morning be full of the knowledge of God's will on July 13th. I wish it was that way, but it's not. This prayer is answered by what we call the normal means of grace. How do you gain more knowledge of God? He gave us a book. It's an autobiography, biography actually, of who he is and what he's done. Our knowledge of God will always come from his word. You're filled with the knowledge of his will as you hear it preached, 
as you sing it like we did today, this morning, as you pray it, as you read it, and as you immerse yourself in it. When Paul mentions that they had a love for the saints, the implication is that they're involved and faithful to be part of a local body. And as he prays that they'll be filled with the knowledge of God's will, the implication is also that they're part of a local body. Showing up for church, Bibles open, learning, growing, absorbing, and then going home and being Bereans to check these things out to see if they're so. Beloved, church is not supplemental. It's fundamental. And, and when any of us miss, and you all know this, we're losing ground. We're going backwards because we're missing the continued opportunity to increase in the knowledge of God. Now, I was thinking about this in my own personal life. I've been a believer now for a little over 40 years, and I honestly believe I have not even scratched the surface in my knowledge of God and His will. I mean, He's infinite. He's eternal. He's incomprehensible. So no matter how long you're a believer, you should want to know Him more and more and more. Want His word more to, 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 to continue to teach you and to draw you and to rebuke you and to challenge you and to encourage you. I hope you read your Bible. I hope you read it on your own. I hope with all the available tools out there that you, that you listen to teaching and listen to sermons and good sermons. And, and, and I hope that you have a greater and a greater desire to be filled with the knowledge of His will. And I hope you satisfy that desire by what David reminds us of in Psalm 1, meditating and delighting in it day and night. As soon as we're able to plan as a leadership in light of all that's going on in our culture with COVID and so on, um, we, we, we want to have Sunday school again. Not just with the adults, we want to have church-wide Sunday school. And, and, and then when we begin it, I, I hope that everybody comes. I hope we don't lose one person. Why? To see this prayer answered. So that you may continually be filled with the knowledge of His will. To have another 40 minutes or so of additional instruction to continue to immerse ourselves in Scripture, to continue to grow and learn about our great God. So that you have go home with these truths to talk about with one another and if in your family as well. You know, all of our lives, every day, we are marinating in a worldview that is against God's word, that's against God, and that's against Scripture. Some of you are familiar with Ligonier Ministry where R.C. Sproul directed that for so many years and he's gone home to be with the Lord. But, but what was the slogan for the entire ministry? Renewing your mind comes directly from Romans 12.1. It's the scripture that renews our minds, that fills us with a knowledge of God's will so we can have thoughts that conform to God's word instead of the steady stream of the American life and culture. We need to have our minds renewed. And again, the only way to be filled with the knowledge of His will is through seeking and knowing Him through His Word. Everything else in this prayer is contingent on learning more and more about the God who created us, the God who redeemed us. Knowledge of God is where it starts. But it's not, it's not just to become a theological egghead. It's not just so that you have the tools to argue doctrine and theology with people that you don't like or whoever disagrees with you. 
Knowledge of God and His will is not to make you a brawling, pugnacious, argumentative zealot. Nor is it to give you just a big head. We shouldn't be like gigantic spiritual tadpoles with these gigantic heads full of all this knowledge in this little tiny body because we never live out the Christian life. Argumentative Christians are not helpful in the proclamation of the gospel. We need to defend the faith, but we must do it the right way. And sometimes our pugnacious attitude is a result of knowledge that's never been translated into a life of obedience. Because as the verse goes on, being filled with the knowledge of his will is with all spiritual wisdom and understanding. It simply means that what we know about God should translate into how we live for God. The phrase spiritual wisdom is this practical know-how that comes from God. It's the capacity to both understand and act wisely. It's acting according to God's will in an in a experiential manner. Spiritual understanding is the, is the faculty to, to decide between particular cases. It has the idea of discernment or making the right judgment. I mean, most of you are familiar that these words and phrases are literally used throughout the book of Proverbs and nearly always mean acting in an obedient, God-honoring way. That's, that's what this means. It's, it's God's word should be changing our lives, which is made even more obvious in the next few phrases, isn't it? So as to walk in a manner that is worthy of the Lord, to fully please him, to bear fruit in every good work, and to increase in the knowledge of God. A greater knowledge of God should result in behavior that's pleasing to Him. Belief and behavior go hand in hand. When we as husbands and, and, and wives, we read or hear God's Word preached about the roles and responsibilities in our marriages by God's grace, it should move us to obedience. So we might walk in a manner pleasing to the Lord. When, when children hear God's word preached about their role and responsibility as young people. And by God's grace, it should move them to obedience as well. Employees or even United States citizens. Knowledge of God's word and his will is designed to, to, to move us to obedience. And Paul's anticipating that our obedience actually eventually bears fruit. Others begin to notice that you're obeying the Lord. Others see the differences in your lives between you and others. And God actually can and will use that to bring some to saving faith. And what's more amazing is in verse 10 where he says we're increasing in the knowledge of God. I mean, it's circular. He prays we'll be filled with the knowledge of God and his will and what's ultimately answered, when that's answered, you'll have a deeper desire for a greater knowledge of God. And this, in turn, will translate into a more worthy walk, to please the Lord, to bear much fruit. And that will increase in a desire for a greater knowledge of God. So at the end of the day, Paul's praying that we'll have a hunger for God that will never be satisfied and a knowledge of God that we will forever seek. And as we get to know Him in all His fullness, it should have a profound effect on every aspect of our behavior. Again, because belief 
and practice go hand in hand. So the more you know him, the more you desire to obey him. And the more you obey him, the more you desire to know him. And the more you know him, the more you desire to obey him. And the more you obey him, the more you desire to know him. And it goes on and on and on. See, genuine full knowledge of God is the breeding ground for the obedient heart. And the obedient heart has these greater longings for a more intimate knowledge of God. So at the end of the day, there is no greater prayer that you could pray for another believer than this. Oh Lord, please fill the believers at Grace Fellowship Church with a knowledge of your will. Give them spiritual wisdom, discernment, understanding that they might live and behave in a manner that's worthy of your great and holy name. So they'll please you in all they do, produce fruits of the Christian life, and have a greater hunger and thirst to continue to know you until they see you face to face. When you don't know what to pray for another believer, you open your Bible at Colossians 1, and you put their name in there, and please do that for me. But don't stop there, because this prayer continues in verse 11. When he asks that they may be strengthened with all power according to God's glorious might. Now again, that is not a spiritual zap. I wish it was. The glorious might that Paul's referring to is literally the resurrection of power of Jesus Christ that lives in and through us by the Holy Spirit. It's a reminder. Since the Spirit of God lives in us and through us, that we have a helper who comes to our aid. We're redeemed, we are redeemed believers who still live in a sin-cursed world. And the two areas that we need the most help are actually represented in these two words, endurance and patience. The word endurance has to do with patiently enduring difficult people. The word patience has to do with having patience with difficult problems and circumstances. Now that is amazingly practical because all of our lives we deal with two things, difficult circumstances and difficult people. And to be honest with you right now, we're in the middle of this as I preach because we have to endure with patience how we feel about the circumstances around the COVID virus and how the government is, is handling it. And we also have to be patient with those who don't agree with our position as they're handling the coronavirus. And if it's not the coronavirus, it would be something else. Everything in our lives, everything in your life that causes anxiety and stress is because of people and circumstances. Have you ever had the thought, you know, if so-and-so would just move, my life would be so much better. I know you have. I know you have. I know you have. Or, you know, if, if this problem, God would just fix it, life would be great. F-Y-I. We live in a world that's cursed by sin. Earth is not heaven. People and problems will always need divine help to work through them. Because as soon as person A leaves the area, person B shows up worse than person A. And as soon as problem A leaves the premises, problem B shows up 
usually worse. So in either of these cases, we need constant endurance and constant patience from God. It's the Spirit of God in us that can produce the patience we need to endure both people and circumstances. And Paul's prayer, his prayer for them is that they understand the power that is in them because of the Holy Spirit. Christ is in them and they are in Christ. And when you put the whole prayer together, he's laboring in prayer. So they'll have more and more knowledge of God through his word and, and more and more understanding of how the Spirit works in them to give them the power to obey. Then finally, after expressing his thankfulness for their salvation, after praying for their sanctification, he goes on and gives them the reasons why they should be thankful as he explains what really happened to them when they became Christian believers. And beloved, if you're truly a Christian, this happened to you as well, the moment when you, when you became a Christian. And this is so important that, and I'm not sure that, that every Christian understands this. So I want to be clear. If someone asked you specifically, you know, what happened to you when you became a Christian? What happened to you? I wonder how you'd answer them. When God called you to himself, when Christ's blood cleansed you of your sin, when you heard and when you understood the word of truth, the gospel, what happened to you when all that happened is really nothing less than astounding. Based on verses 12 and 13, I think you could tell someone that asked that question something like this. When I became a Christian believer, I, who, who was completely unqualified for any inheritance in God's family, I was considered qualified by God for an inheritance I didn't deserve. And I, who loved darkness rather than light, and was completely under the power and domain of darkness, I've been delivered by God and I now live in the light of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I, who was condemned to an eternity in hell and had no kingdom whatsoever, I was transferred into the eternal kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what happened to you behind the scenes when you became a believing Christian. And make no mistake about it, this did not become because you deserve it. This did not happen because you earned it. It did not happen because you merited it. And it, and it didn't happen because, because you decided to do it. Look at verse 12. Who did the qualifying? Somebody answer me. The Father. Verse 13. Who is doing the delivering from darkness? Big pronoun. The word is He. The Father. And who is doing the transferring? Big pronoun. He. The Father. This is Paul's introductory lesson to these believers, to all that happened to them when they trusted Christ to save them. And it's designed for them to see how great God is and how marvelous salvation is. And the more we understand what happened, then the, then the more grateful we'll be to the God who made it happen. And that's why in verse 12 he starts out with giving thanks to the Father. Maybe you've had this experience uh, or know someone that has. Maybe there's a, a violent or a horrible car accident that you were in or someone you know and, and the person that you know or maybe it was you uh, or, or wheeled off in, a, in an ambulance that you weren't hurt that bad but they took you anyway but you really never saw the damage. You never saw it for a day or two and you go back to the scene of the accident and, 
and, and you just look at the car and, and the front end is completely squished. The engine's in the front seat. The roof is caved in. All the glass is broken to pieces. Rolled over a few times. And, and, and you had no serious injuries. And, and you look at that and all you can do is shake your head and just say, my, my, it is amazing that I'm here. It is amazing that I'm alive. It's amazing that I'm still walking. And I think when we're exposed to and we learn and understand all that's happened to us in Christ, we too should just shake our heads. I have an inheritance. I am no longer in darkness. I've been brought into his eternal kingdom and I didn't do anything to earn this. The Father did it through His Son. This is why we sing. How marvelous, how wonderful, and my song shall ever be. How marvelous, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. See, in a sense, he's, Paul's taken us back to where we were before we were believing Christians, to what we are now as believing Christians. And when you really grasp that you were so unqualified that you should never have had any inheritance, and when you understand that you actually love darkness rather than light, you weren't even looking to have your eyes open and to be delivered. And how there's no possibility for you to ever cross over from the kingdom you were born into, the kingdom of Satan, into the kingdom of Christ. There's no way to get there. See, when you understand after the fact how bad the wreck really was, and then you understand that he's given you an eternal, undefiled inheritance that will never fade and never perish. And then you understand that he brought you from darkness into his marvelous light. And, 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 and now we're, we're, we're not just paupers under the bridge, but we're living in, in the kingdom as joint heirs with his beloved son. All of these, all of these are, are, are there. So you just step back and just say, I should never be here. I should never be here. That's why John Newton said, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. See, that's the what. That's what happened to you if you're a Christian. But Paul doesn't even stop there because not only does he, he want us to know the what or the why, he, he, he closes the section out kind of with, with how. Well, how did this really happen? And, and two of the most wonderful things in Scripture in verse 14, redemption and forgiveness. It's only through redemption and forgiveness that, that, that our sins, of our sins, that we receive all the things Paul's mentioning here. And, and there's a transition in this verse from the Father to the beloved Son. The, the Father calls and He administrates our salvation, but the Son is the one who's accomplished our salvation. So, so verse 12 and 13 are about the Father who qualifies and who delivers and who transfers 
into the kingdom of the beloved Son. And it's through the Son that we're redeemed and forgiven. And with a focus on the Son, Paul then jumps into verse 15 to tell us more and more and more and more and more about Jesus. He's the invisible God, the firstborn of creation, and by Him and through Him and for Him and to Him. This is a great book. This is a great book. The word redemption means to liberate or, or, or deliver by the payment of a ransom. It means to buy back. It was used in the first century when a slave was bought and purchased uh, out of slavery. We know that we're born slaves of sin. And as slaves, we're helpless and our lives are hopeless and powerless. There's no possibility of us freeing ourselves from the slavery that we were born into. And, and what redemption does, it's more than just freedom. It's not just that our chains are, have come off. To free a slave, a price had to be paid. To free a slave, an exchange had to take place. To, to free a slave, there, there had to be, someone had to pay the ransom. And we know, we know that someone to be the Lord Jesus Christ. We who are slaves of sin and under God's wrath and deserving his just, just punishment, we were purchased, we were bought back, we were freed from our bondage to slavery and the wrath that we deserve because the Lord Jesus Christ sacrificed his life on the cross, paying for our sin and dying in our place. And the results of our redemption Similar to the results in the Old Testament when an animal was sacrificed for a guilty sinner, the results in verse 14 is the forgiveness of sins. In Christ we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. Psalm 103 verse 12 says that, that, that as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Beloved, we are qualified. We are delivered. And we are transferred because Jesus Christ paid the penalty for our sin on the cross. And therefore, we have a full pardon and we have full forgiveness. I think, isn't it hallelujah, what a Savior? Full forgiveness, can it be? Hallelujah, what a Savior. He who knew no sin became sin for us so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. All of this and so much more happened to you when you trusted in the life, death, and resurrection of Christ to save you. You have a glorious inheritance awaiting you. You've been freed from your previous bondage to sin. And you serve a new King Jesus who's welcomed you and transferred you into his glorious kingdom. So live and walk in such a way that you demonstrate your gratitude and your allegiance to Him. I wonder here this morning if everybody in here can, can, can give testimony of the fact that yes, I have been redeemed this morning. I wonder if everyone in here can be fully confident, are you fully confident that your sins are forgiven? I wonder if you can give testimony that, that Christ has ransomed you, that He has paid for your sin. Do you know that you have been freed from his wrath? Or do you carry, still carry, this burden on your back because you have not admitted to God that you're a helpless sinner 
and you haven't looked to the cross, the sacrifice of Christ to save you from your sin, if that is you this morning, what are you waiting for? Life's a vapor. It appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Those of you this morning that don't know Christ, again, today's the day of salvation. The catechism says, do you understand your sin and misery? Do you understand Christ has saved you from your sin and misery? And have you expressed thanksgiving for the salvation that he's provided? Admit to him you're a sinner. Express your need for Christ. Confess your belief and understanding in his death and resurrection. Trust him. And then talk to me or, or Brad about baptism. So we could baptize you into Christ as you have put your faith and trust in him. He will cleanse you. He will forgive you. And then you'll be able to testify of the power that he delivered you from the domain of darkness and brought you into his kingdom that has no end. And for those of you who are already in Christ, you're believing Christians this morning, just take a step back. Be reminded of the wreck of your life apart from Christ. And then shake your head in joyful praise at our wonderful, merciful Savior, precious Redeemer and friend. Let's pray.